Thanks, Sam. And uh, yeah, I'm really excited to be here. Um, so you sort of gave the outlines of the talk already in the introduction, so I'll just fill in the blanks. Um, but yeah, we're a small 12-person company based in San Francisco. Um, and I think we're, in a way, maybe this is why we're here. We're, re we're representative of a, a younger generation of outdoor brands um, that's you know, hopefully shaking some things up and doing some new things while uh, still trying to find our way, very much so. Um, so I'm going to talk about the role of design in our process, um, not just in terms of the products, but in the business itself. Um, and hopefully give a, you know, a pretty nuanced and somewhat honest view of how that's worked for us and how it hasn't. Um, I just want to start with a brief introduction to our company. And I'm going to cheat a little bit and go to a video. As kids, all it takes is a box and some imagination to start that next big adventure. As adults, we never quite lost that imagination. But we did create a better box. Meet Orukayak, a box. Or as we see it, a voyaging sea vessel waiting for its captain to take it out on its next big odyssey. This is a kayak that fits. Because the more places you can fit your kayak, the more places you can take your kayak. And while other people might just see a box, we know you imagine a destination. And while other people might just see a river or a lake or an ocean, we know you see a playground, just waiting to be explored. When Sam and Michelle asked me to talk about design and the role of design in launching the company, uh, the first thing I looked at was the dictionary. And uh, there are a couple of definitions of design, and I think the first one is one that we're all familiar with and many of you spend your daily lives doing. Uh, and the second one, I think, is a little more interesting for the purposes of this talk. So it reads, uh, the purpose, planning, or intention that exists or is thought to exist behind an action, fact, or material object. So it's the idea that design isn't just about aesthetics or the look and feel of something. It's about uh, kind of having a master plan, um, having a grand vision, uh, knowing how everything's supposed to be organized and structured. And some of that has definitely played out in our company, um, or we've, we've tried to make it at least, um, in terms of the branding, things like the brand, uh, the brand video you just watched, which gives a, a very polished view of what we do. And as it turns out, often hides a lot of mayhem in terms of what we actually do. Uh, so there have been some, some times in our company where we've run a pretty tight ship and pulled things together and more or less lived by this, this idiom, having planning and intention behind everything we do. But there have also been some other times where we've had randomness, um, coincidences, moments of serendipity, and to be honest, some periods of utter chaos. And I think in many ways those have been just as valuable for us as a company. Um, we've come out of them in some really interesting places. We've survived all of them, and in all cases, we've come out stronger for it. Uh, so what I'm going to talk about is kind of the, the interplay between those two elements, um, the parts of the business that require this, this structure, this planning and intention, and the places where it's been really beneficial for us to 
even accept a little bit of chaos and randomness is, you know, kind of the price we pay for creativity and for searching for the next idea. So I'm going to start with just the, uh, the history of our company, and uh, I'll start by going way back. Um, so uh, for me, the, the history of the company really goes back a couple thousand years to when the Inuit uh, first uh, expanded across the, the high Arctic. And I've always had a really deep fascination with boats as a designer. Um, I'm originally trained as an architect. Uh, just to me, they, they really symbolize the, the synergy between form and function better than almost anything else that humans have ever done. Um, you know, the, the form and the shapes are completely dictated by the, you know, the rigors of engineering and how they have to move through the water. But at the same time, I think they're literally maybe the most beautiful objects that humans have ever built. Uh, and that's really compelling to me, um, just that, that absolute interplay between form and function. Uh, and even within that, to me, um, kayaks are sort of the absolute essence of a boat, uh, distilled down to its purest form. Um, and, you know, there's something, there's something really neat about that, especially given where they came from. You know, in a way, the Arctic is also the landscape or the wilderness distilled down to its purest form, just kind of ice and rock and water. And kayaks are the, the pure form that allows humans to survive in that environment. So that's a very kind of abstract, philosophical, high-level view of things. Um, but how this actually played out in my life is that uh, about 12 years ago when I moved to the Bay Area, I um, quickly learned that uh, getting outside was a bit of a problem. I'd grown up in a rural area, um, but I learned that to go for a hike, I needed to drive an hour. To go camping, I needed to drive for a couple hours. But on the other hand, uh, just going out in the Bay and paddling around, I could do in about 15 minutes, and it uh, once you're out in the middle of the bay, it just feels like you're out in the mountains or out in the lake or something. It's, you, you get that different state of mind where it just feels like you're, you're in this really more expansive place. So I got a kayak. I uh, paddled it almost every weekend for a few years. And then at some point, um, as with many people, uh, San Francisco rents caught up with me and I had to move into a studio apartment uh, with no backyard. So there was no place to put a 16-foot kayak. Uh, it went into storage in my dad's barn, where it still is. And I kind of gave up on it for a while. I, I missed kayaking, but I wasn't sure what to do about it. So this is where the first uh, big coincidence came in, um, and sort of the, the origin story of Oru Kayak, if you will. I randomly read this New Yorker article um, about uh, this physicist named Dr. Robert Lang, who became a professional origamist. So, while well, he was working at his day job at uh, Lawrence Berkeley Labs, uh, designing physics and other brilliant things, whatever he did, um, he was also playing around with folding paper. And uh, he, being a somewhat obsessive personality, on nights and weekends, he came up with some pretty impressive things. So his, his specialty became insects. Um, anatomically correct uh, insects like this, this stick bug that are folded out of one sheet of paper. Um, same rules as, you know, elementary school origami, one square sheet, no cuts, and you can actually do that out of that. Uh, but to do that, you need some pretty powerful tools, so he actually came up with his own software to uh, come up with the fold patterns um, in the background. Actually, about half the lines are dropped out, so you can't see the full complexity there. So. At some point, he decided he was bored with his day job and he wanted to become a full-time origamist. And you might ask, well, how does one make a living doing that? Which is a fair question. And, uh, you know, there are a few answers. One is to sell beautiful paper objects like this as, as works of art. And another is to consult for clients like NASA. So this is the lens of a space telescope that he designed. Um, sorry about the picture quality. I saw it on a 
much smaller laptop, uh, which is designed to fold up into the cargo bay of a rocket um, to go into space. So, you know, this, this article was really inspiring for a couple reasons. One is uh, that I started thinking about a kayak in similar terms. You know, if you could fold up a space telescope, it seems like a kayak shouldn't be that hard, right? And the other was uh, just the power of where an unexpected obsession can lead you. Um, that this guy, you know, was an incredibly high-powered physicist, and he followed his obsession about just folding paper, you know, this sort of thing that's easy to dismiss as a, a child's game. And he did some really spectacularly amazing things with it and ended up making a living out of it. So I started thinking a little bit more seriously about, about this kayak project of mine and if there could actually be a kayak that folded up like paper. And I started looking at some other origami art um, and found some other really interesting things that, paper, that people were doing. Uh, this one it bends the rules a little bit. It does involve cuts and it's multiple sheets of paper. But as you can see, it, it gets these amazingly fluid, elegant forms out of a flat sheet of paper. And that seemed very applicable to a kayak, you know. If I was going to do this, I wanted to do it right. Not some, some janky angular thing, but something with the, the elegance and beauty of the, the boats that I'd admired before. So I started out just uh, folding pieces of paper. Um, uh, you know, printer paper at first, cardboard eventually. And pretty soon, uh, since I'm, I work pretty hands-on, I started making prototypes. So the first prototype ever was made out of a, a sheet of coroplast that I bought at a sign shop. It's the same stuff that they use to make yard signs and the U.S. Postal Ser Service totes. And so the first one was made out of one sheet, literally duct taped together. I took it down to the Berkeley Marina, got in it, got in a few paddle strokes, and sunk after about 30 seconds. So that was an abject failure. Um, but being somewhat obsessive myself, I kept going with it. And after a few more prototypes, I uh, got to the point where it was something that was, you know, pretty weird and ugly, but you could actually paddle it. So I started uh, just treating it as a really fun little project. I'd, I'd build a prototype, and then the next weekend I'd have a barbecue with my friends out by the water, and we'd all go out and paddle. And it was great. You know, I, was, uh, I had a creative outlet for work that wasn't quite getting indulged. Um, at the time, I was working for an architecture studio that uh, very much adhered to that that definition of design that I presented, uh, very controlled, minimal, kind of uh, methodical. And I was craving something a little bit uh, faster and more hands-on. So the interesting thing was, after a couple more prototypes, uh, some strangers, you know, we'd still have these barbecues, and some strangers would come up and say, hey, can I take that thing out for a spin? And we'd say, okay, sure. And then after a couple more prototypes, uh, someone asked me, hey, are you thinking about selling these? I'd buy one. And I said, well, no, it's, it's a hobby, it's a side project, but, you know, let me, let me get your name. If anything happens, I'll let you know. Uh, and it turns out that eventually one of those people was one of our first Kickstarter backers, but that's, that's another story. Um, and then after a couple more prototypes, uh, this being San Francisco, someone said, hey, that's pretty interesting. Would you be interested in investment? So, <laughs> didn't end up actually going with that one, but it happens occasionally in the Bay Area. So... Eventually, it kind of came to the point where it was decision time. Does this stay a fun side project, or does it become a real product in a company? And I had some serious misgivings at that point. I'd never thought of myself as a business person at all. That was a pretty high hurdle to get over. And I decided what, you know, what really needed to happen for that to work was to have some partners, um, that I wasn't suited to all aspects of the business, and I had to find some other people. So here again, the sort of uh, the planned and the unplanned converged. Um, 
On the planned end, I was methodically looking around uh, MBA programs in the Bay Area for a business student who was graduating, and eventually I landed one. He'd never been in a kayak before, but <laughs> that didn't stop him. The, f the first time he went was in one of these, in a prototype uh, right under the Golden Gate Bridge, which probably wasn't the best spot in retrospect, but he survived. I, w I wish we had videos. It was pretty, pretty funny. It was his idea to go there, by the way, not mine. Of course, because he'd never been in a kayak before and he didn't understand how dangerous the Golden Gate is. Anyway, uh, so then the second partner, my, my second co-founder uh, came through serendipity. Um, a friend of a friend on Facebook said, hey, I, I heard about this interesting thing you're doing. Um, I'm a former professional surf kayaker and I'm about to move to the Bay Area. I'd love to, if you're looking for any product testing, I'd love to jump in. So he said, sure, okay. And uh, he became my other co-founder eventually, despite not, that wasn't his intention at all when he reached out, but he got excited about it and we hit it off and, and that worked out. So, so then we had to think about how to actually launch this as a business. And the traditional model, I think, is very much in the, uh, you know, the purposeful, intentional design process. And uh, I have a secret fondness for really cheesy stock photos. So this is kind of how I imagine it being, that there's kind of a, a bro with a tie who's coming up with the perfect business plan. He's writing it on a whiteboard backwards, you know, because you couldn't actually read it forwards if, if you can read it from here. And it has, you know, the concept, the product, marketing, a big dollar sign, and then success. So, you know, that, that sounds pretty great, right? So you do this, uh, you take it to some investors, you get a pile of money, um, you rent some nice offices, you spend a few months or years coming up with the perfect product, you put it out into the market, and you see if people like it or not. <laughs> and if they do, fantastic. And if not, you just wasted a bunch of your time and a bunch of yours and other people's money. So, this, uh, this was in 2012, and uh, I think there were a couple inflection points that were pretty interesting happening in, world, in the world around then. Uh, one was that I was able to move from my friend's garage where the early prototypes had been done into a makerspace. Uh, this is Tech Shop in San Francisco. Um, I don't know if there are any in Portland, but anyway, it's a, it's a fantastic resource for the Bay Area. Um, so we basically, the three co-founders, we'd camp upstairs at these tables with our laptops, and then downstairs there's all manners of uh, equipment, machinery, prototype making stuff, um, just you know, millions of dollars worth of tools that would be incredibly difficult to access um, in a traditional business model. You know, you'd have to buy just millions of dollars worth of equipment. Uh, so this was really great for getting us off the ground. Uh, there was also a really fantastic community around it. Uh, we met a lot of people doing a lot of really interesting things and also a few people who were in the midst of or had just launched companies uh, somewhat similar to what we were thinking of. Not, not in terms of the product necessarily, but the, the scale, um, you know, the type of market, that sort of thing. Um, so that was a really exciting place to be. Uh, the other big thing that was happening around then was that uh, crowdfunding and Kickstarter in particular, I think, were really starting to get their footing. Um, to go from sort of a curiosity to a really legit, accepted way of getting stuff out there. I think at the time we started, there had just been, there had just been the first million dollar Kickstarter project. Um, uh, but it still hadn't completely taken off to the extent it has now. Uh, so we decided to treat this really as an experiment. Uh, we said, okay, you know, all three of us are well, I was pretty committed at that point, but the other two were kind of like, you know, we'll, we'll test this out for a while, we'll see how the campaign goes, and we'll see what happens then. So, uh, we launched, yeah, we launched at the end of 2012, um, and uh, it definitely exceeded our expectations. We ended up raising almost half a million dollars. Um, it was the biggest raise for an outdoor product uh, at the time. 
That's been surpassed several times over by now, I think probably including by some people in this room, uh, which I think is fantastic. Um, it just really shows how, how that kind of platform has matured and how helpful it's been to getting a lot of new products and companies off the ground. So the flip side of uh, treating it all as an experiment is that all of that intentionality uh, of design uh, in terms of this process pretty much went completely out the window. Um, it was really utter chaos for the next eight months. Um, we ended up selling about 500 units and we had a major manufacturing crisis as soon as Kickstarter started. Uh, leading up to this, I'd, I'd actually ha been having a really hard time finding American manufacturers willing to do anything. So I basically gave up on it, uh, found somewhere in China, was in touch with them for a while. As soon as Kickstarter launched, the, uh, the people in China decided they wanted to quadruple our quote because suddenly they saw that we had more money. So that didn't go so well. So, you know, it was, it was kind of like the highest high and the highest low at exactly the same time when we were having all this money pouring in and having absolutely no idea how to get it done. But at the same time, the platform uh, kind of saved our ass because I was able to go back to some of the same manufacturers who had rejected us the first time around and say, hey, look, people want this. If you build it, they will buy it. You should do this. And it worked. <laughs> so that was good. But we should have done it several months before that, if anyone's looking for advice. So, uh, so yeah, when I think back to that time, it was incredibly stressful, but I also think back on it with a certain fondness. I mean, the, the three of us got more done in six months than the 10 of us now have ever gotten done in a year. Um, it was just amazing, the sheer volume of stuff we got done. And I think, in a way, um, the interesting thing about that is it was utter chaos, but there was also an inc incredibly clear, tangible, simple goal for us. It was just get these boats out that people have ordered and send them to those people. Um, it's that simple. And I think that combination of chaos and a really strong goal is actually pretty powerful for getting things done. Um, being in a, a steady chaos mode really kind of keeps you on your toes and, and lets you act really quickly and, and flexibly to problems as they come up, which they always do. And having the goal keeps you from completely falling off the map. Um, at least in our case, it did. So after this, we decided, well, you know, that was, that was good and it was bad, but we can't keep doing it that way. It's physically impossible for all of us. So for the next year or so, we really just focused on uh, tightening everything up, on um, both in terms of the brand and the operations in the company. A lot of nuts and bolts things, um, just getting things systematized, getting things organized, improving the communication between everyone. And this also involved uh, some pretty big role changes, including for myself. I started the company as CEO, um, both because I had the most skin in the game and I knew the most about things at the time. Um, but as we went on and as we entered this phase, it uh, gradually became clear that I wasn't the best person to lead it, um, that other people are better than, at organizing things than me, and that I'm, I was most useful to the company when I could just focus on design and not uh, focus on spreadsheets and things like that. So, you know, that was... Uh, that was a good process. There was some soul searching and some hard conversations, but um, I think that was definitely part of designing the company for to be the most effective. So we also started thinking about uh, how we fit into the industry as a whole. Um, we started talking to retailers. We started uh, just kind of understanding things because none of us really had any industry experience whatsoever, or in many cases, any business experience whatsoever. So we had this big debate the first year about whether we should go to the OR or not. And because we had nothing to sell, um, we, had, we were backlogged months on our, first on our Kickstarter orders and then on direct orders after Kickstarter. Uh, our margins were way too high for any retailers to be involved at all. 
But we knew we wanted to do it eventually, so we thought, okay, let's, let's give it a shot. And uh, we'll go there, we'll, we'll make, make a nice but tiny, you know, 10-foot square booth for a kayak, which is also kind of funny. Um, <laughs> especially when you're trying to fold one up in there. Um, but uh, so we got there, and we didn't really have a clear idea of what we were going to say to people when they asked about buying them. Uh, kind of like, you know, back on the beach a few years before that. So the, <laughs> the best answer to that, so eventually, you know, we, we had all these conversations with retailers where we sort of hedged things, and eventually one guy was just like, look, why are you guys here? And Roberto, one of my partners, said, well, are you going to remember us next year? And he said, yeah. And he said, are you going to remember those kayaks over there next year? And he said, probably not. And he said, okay, that's why we're here. So... <laughs> There was some planning and some non-planning there. Um, planning in that we knew that this was going to be part of our business eventually and we should get started on it. Non-planning in that we had no idea how to answer that question at the beginning of the show. We kind of figured out, we figured out some better answers by the end of the show. And in fact, I think we, we figured out a lot about how to actually detail, deal with retailers in that situation. Um, partly it was really useful for that because the stakes were so low. We didn't have anything to sell, so we couldn't really screw up a deal. Yeah. <laughs> right? We were just there to learn and we learned a lot. So it worked out. So once we started getting our, our toes wet with retailers and got some other things, under, other things under control, we started thinking about um, new products. And uh, for the rest of the talk, I'm mostly going to talk, uh, uh, talk about that tension between uh, design planning and uh, randomness chaos in terms of product rollouts, because this is a design, pro design conference and I'm a designer, and it illustrates them pretty well. So, you know, after the Kickstarter chaos, we thought, well, we should, uh, we should do something easy for our first new product release. So we planned it out and thought, okay, what's the easiest thing we can do? The easiest thing we can do is a variation of the product we already have. So we thought about how we could make a, a premium version, how we could upgrade various parts of it. And uh, we came up with a model that had some, you know, some new hardware, some new accessories, uh, new skin print, new rigging, better seat, and things like that. The thing we, didn't, we really didn't know, um, you know, that Kickstarter had answered for us the first time, um, was whether people would buy it or not. You know, are people going to actually spend a few hundred bucks more for this thing than one that's pretty similar? So we, you know, we'd, at that point we were actually doing financial plans, so we said, okay, let's guess, let's guesstimate that 25% uh, of the people are going to buy this and 75% are going to buy the other one. So we launched it, and actually, uh, for the two or three years that this was on the market, uh, it outsold the base model two to one, which shocked all of us. We kept thinking it was going to revert back to normal, and it never did. So this kind of taught us a really interesting lesson about who we actually were versus who we'd started out thinking we were. Um, again, we'd sort of had this designed idea that we were going to be a company that was all about accessibility, that we were going to come out with a mass market product. But as we went on, um, especially you know, during that switch from Chinese manufacturing that forced, but you know, good in the end switch from Chinese to US manufacturing, uh, it became clear that we couldn't afford to do that, A, and B, that that's, not just, that's just not who we were and not what people saw us as. Um, people saw us as a premium brand, and they were willing to pay more money for it. Um, we weren't necessarily competing with all the other roto-molded kayaks on the market, and people saw us as something really different. Um, where we didn't necessarily have to, to fit into their structure or their world. That was also a really valuable lesson. Um, so, you know, the Kickstarter, the Kickstarter platform or methodology is really good at answering que some certain questions, and um, some, other, some other ways of doing things are good at answering other questions. 
So as we went on for our next product, we thought, okay, that, that worked okay, that was reasonably smooth. What can we do that's a little bit more, more ambitious, but not too terribly difficult? And again, we were still, still at Kickstarter fresh in our minds. Uh, so our next product was the Coast, the Coast and the Coast Plus, um, basically a 16-foot sea kayak version of the 12-foot the original, original model there. Uh, so designed for camping, expeditions, um, again, a more high-end premium version, um, premium model uh, to go along with what we'd learned in the previous round, uh, but a little bit more complicated from a design standpoint. Uh, you know, gave us a little bit of a chance to flex some design muscles. So we did another Kickstarter campaign for this model. Um, it was also pretty successful, not as successful as the first one, but um, about $300,000. And uh, yeah, the second Kickstarter was not without its hiccups, but vastly smoother than the first one. So clearly we learned some lessons. I think, I mean, having a manufacturer lined up and already building boats was certainly the biggest, the biggest difference. So, uh, since we're all design geeks, I'm going to do another video that just talks a little bit more about this model and the technical specs. Welcome to the Big Adventure. The 16-foot-long Coast Series is capable of some serious distance and speed. With its long and streamlined hull and its finely tuned rocker, the Coast can travel 25% faster than our other boats. The cockpit of the Coast is relatively snug to increase seaworthiness and the raised cockpit rim fits the Oru spray skirt for use in rough water. To add rigidity to the long hull, the Coast uses three bulkheads. With over 180 liters of storage, these boats are perfect for hauling up to 400 pounds on your multi-day trips. The Coast Plus adds stainless steel ratchet buckles, thigh braces for added control, and an adjustable seat for added comfort. To increase accessibility and safety, the Coast Plus comes with rubber deck straps and full deckline rigging for expedition outfitting. The Coast is all about control and performance, so you can be all about adventure. So after this, we thought, okay, we're in a pretty good place. Uh, we've learned some lessons. We've gotten okay at organizing things and planning things out. Um, and so we started thinking about more advanced, or sorry, more ambitious projects, uh, new products. Um, and we sort of, we came up with this methodology of brainstorming and putting together a plan. Um, we, you know, we set aside some time to do this. And we started playing around with some completely unrelated things. You know, we had an idea of doing things that weren't even kayak related at all, um, seeing if there were other outdoor products or random things that could be made using the same technology, um, which was a lot of fun. And also while we were doing this, uh, I was messing around a little bit with other kayaks. Um, I did some, some really weird ones actually, um, <laughs> some that will certainly never see the light of day, uh, but some that were also a little bit interesting. And uh, so the next, the next product launch that we did was another example of total serendipity. Um, at this point, we'd had a pretty solid footing with REI and our buyer, Nathan, decided he wanted to come out for a meeting to our offices for the first time. Um, so that was great, you know, we did the full dog and pony show with uh, a presentation and lunch and, um, you know, showing him all our boats, taking him out for a paddle. But when he was in our office, uh, he happened to see this cardboard model on my desk. Uh, we still use a lot of cardboard and paper models, by the way, so origami is still very much alive in the company. Uh, but anyway, he said, hey, what's that? And I said, oh, that's, uh, 
that's this new thing we were thinking about a little bit. It's, uh, it's wider and it has a bigger cockpit, so it's more casual, recreational, um, kind of beginner-friendly boat. And he said, huh, that's interesting. Do you have any prototypes of it? And I said, well, we've got one back in the closet, but it's, it's really crude. I don't know if you really want to see it. And he said, no, no, show it to me. I, I know about these things. I'm not going to make any judgment based on where it is now. So we took it out of the closet. We folded it up. He got in it, and he said, and he said huh, okay, this, this seems a little further along than I thought. And he thought for a minute, and he said, so if we put in a PO for a 1,000 of these, could you deliver it in six months? <laughs> so we kind of took a long look at each other and said, well, um, okay. And uh, suddenly, all of the other beautifully planned stuff was out the window, and we had this overwhelming project that was a lot like Kickstarter again. Um, the big difference being that... Uh, with Kickstarter, in our experience at least, um, backers are pretty accommodating and understanding with delays or any hiccups, as long as you're transparent and honest with them. Um, REI, on the other hand, is locked into a completely seasonal sales schedule with kayaks, and it was like, if you don't deliver it this month, uh, there are going to be major repercussions. So, um, yeah, that was a really other interesting six months. Um, and, yeah, kind of reliving Kickstarter with more people. Um, I also had a new baby at that point, which was really great timing. So, um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was, it was really kind of a rerun. Uh, the last few months before ramping up production, sorry, the last few weeks uh, before we ramped up production, we literally took all of the 10 people in the company um, down to our factory in a van and had everyone working on something. We had, you know, our accountant um, sorting through parts inventory and our marketing guy moving tables around and our customer service people filing sharp plastic pieces, and uh, yeah, it was total chaos. And uh, yeah, to be honest, it wasn't as fun as the first Kickstarter campaign. That was pretty stressful. But uh, other good learning lessons. I think we've, uh, we've appreciated the benefits of launching really radical new products um, direct to consumer, and probably the next time we do it, we'll do it that way. Um, but it did end up with a product we were pretty proud of. Um, so this is the beach. Um, which is our first completely new model. It's a little blown out there, but as you can see, the, uh, the deck closure works on a really uh, different system that's much easier, to, not much, but it's, uh, it's easier to put together, reduces the, the assembly time. And uh, I'll show another video of this one. Whoops. Welcome to the most accessible kayak we make. The beach can get you out on the water in just three minutes. The new kimono folding design means the beach retains the rigidity that our original shape provides, keeps the water out, and noticeably reduces setup time. Rated at 20,000 fold cycles, not only does the beach fold down to store, but at only 26 pounds, the beach is almost half the weight of similar recreational boats. Holding up to 300 pounds, the beach's wide and long cockpit give you more room to move around or carry a kid or some beer. This extra width makes the beach steadier when paddling and allows for more stable entering and exiting of the boat. From a comfortable backrest to the adjustable footrest, the beach is designed to help keep you stable, centered, and comfortable, allowing paddlers of all sizes to enjoy a great day on the water with some friends. So where we are now, I would say the, the pendulum has kind of swung back and we're back to planning and really thinking about the future. Um, we're in the middle of putting together a five-year plan, which is something we've never really done. Uh, you know, about 18 months has probably been our max to this point. And uh, 
yeah, we're thinking about how it all fits together and the culture we want to build. And um, what I keep saying is that uh, I feel like to, in order to thrive as a designer, I need a certain amount of randomness. I've, I've learned that about myself. And I think a lot of designers that applies to. Um, you need the right balance between structure and uh, some freedom and some looseness. And so we're really trying to figure out where the sweet spot is um, and how to organize things to create that. Uh, because at the same time, there are some really neat, really, you know, very serious and very real organizational needs for us as well. Um, you know, it's not like we're a 300-person behemoth, but even with 12 people, it can be surprisingly hard to get everyone on the same page. And uh, we're working pretty hard on getting that done. But I think this, you know, it kind of brings up this, this tension I mentioned earlier, um, which I think plays out in a lot of different ways. Um, that behind, you know, the most minimal, kind of well-designed, elegant product, there can be a reality that's a lot messier. Uh, there can be things like this where, uh, sorry, that is really blown out. Um, that's the first garage I started prototyping in, um, which was a complete mess. You know, it was full of years of old accumulated family junk from my friend, as well as, you know, piles of kayak junk, eventually. Um, but at the same time, I, I really remember that time in that garage um, with a lot of fondness. Uh, there was a level of engagement and flow of just being in the moment there that has been really hard to find again. Um, you know, within the strictures of a company. And partly, I think that was the environment. I will admit I like things messier than a lot of people. It makes me feel creative. <laughs> I get a lot for that, a lot of uh, shit for that. Uh, partly, I think it was about the demands of, uh, the, or the, I, I suppose the freedom of a side project versus the demands of, of work. Um, you know, if someone had come to me a week before I'd read the New Yorker article and said, hey, we want to hire you to be the chief design officer of an outdoor company, and all you have to do is come up with a really cool, innovative design product that'll end up in the SF MoMA. Uh, I don't know if I would have taken the job, but if I had, I would have been completely clueless and probably either fired or been quit within a week. So I think for, you know, it's, it's really hard to come up with big ideas on demand. Um, and I'm not sure, I'm still not entirely sure how to, how to deal with that. As, uh, as our CDO. But I think the, the best we can do is try to make space for it uh, within the culture and within the, the demands of the company. So that's what we're working on now. So a lot of it uh, comes down to people as well, you know, not just myself. I've mostly talked about myself here, but there are uh, a lot of talented people in our company. And, you know, this is sort of the image we project to the world a lot of the time. Um, the, the equivalent of the, the perfect black and white uh, kayak design that we're all very serious and focused and we do our jobs well. And all of that is completely true, but at the same time, we're also, you know, some goofy people who like to go up to our roof and have beer. Um, you know, in our graffiti-strewn office. So, I think it's about embracing both of those realities uh, that companies and design-focused companies in particular um, need to have a level of focus and a level of organization that, at least from the outside, is very strong and, and almost impenetrable. Um, you know, people have been talking to me for three or four years about, like, how everything must be going great because of how, how slick our Facebook page uh, looks. And it's kind of like, yeah, yeah, that's funny. <laughs> um, 
So, so my ambition for us is to uh, eventually work towards um, a 20% side project policy, um, similar to what some big companies have done. Uh, 3M has done that. That's how the Post-it was invented, by someone messing around in his spare time. Um, Google does that. All kinds of crazy things happening there. And admittedly, it's a lot tougher to do uh, with a really small company that's not like Google and doesn't have cash pouring in through the doors and windows 24-7. Uh, but we're trying to figure it out um, because at some point, you know, uh, we, we don't want to be a one-hit wonder. We want to come up with something cool, uh, kayak or not. But I've always said, if we ever do something that's radically different, I don't want to do it just for the sake of doing it. I want it to be just as cool as that thing is. And like I said, that's really hard to come up with on demand. I have no idea what it is. I've tried to think of it. We've, uh, as I mentioned, we had a, a phase where we were trying to do it according to an agenda, and that did not work at all. Um, didn't come up with anything worthwhile, and uh, Nathan at REI saved our asses. So, yeah. <laughs> so it's, uh, it's a tricky balance, especially when company resources and small company resources are thrown into it. Uh, but hopefully we're trying to figure it out. And that's, uh, that's really why I'm excited to be here also. So when Sam and Michelle invited me here, um, I thought, okay, Portland, that's great. We were, you know, we were really busy when I got the invitation. I knew we were gonna be really busy this week, so I thought, okay, I can fly in in the morning and I can fly out in the afternoon, this will be easy. And then I thought, you know, this is the wrong way to think about it. If, if I'm serious and I'm, you know, practicing what I preach about this, I need to make some time to actually observe other people, listen to other people, meet other people, and seek out some new ideas. Uh, because, you know, if a magazine article could, could tip me off to a new idea, who knows what a room full of 200 outdoors designers could do. So, uh, yeah, so I'm excited to be here. Um, it's fun to talk, but what I'm most excited about uh, today and tomorrow is sitting in on other talks. I've uh, really enjoyed the ones I've heard today and looking forward to the ones tomorrow. And uh, yeah, I'm also looking forward to the, the happy hours and the, the times apart from the, the conferences. I think those are also when some great conversations and some great exchanges of ideas happen. I've already had a couple uh, just today. So yeah, I want to thank uh, Sam and Michelle and also to all of you who uh, hopefully I'll talk to and hopefully uh, we can share some more ideas and um, keep going with this. And uh, happy to answer any questions. Great, do we have questions for Anton? questions along those lines. Um, you showed a couple designs in outside of the watercraft area. Have you thought about housewares, furniture, things like that where you can easily yeah, yeah, apply the, the... Yeah, method? I would say the issue is we've had a lot of ideas. Um, it's just nothing has really grabbed us by the throat. Um, but again, that's kind of a question of time and resources too. Like probably what, you know, as I mentioned, the first kayak prototype I ever made sank in 30 seconds. So. If you were judging by that and we were evaluating prototypes, you would have said that project is a failure, we should drop it and move on to something that actually floats or works. Um, so, you know, that's another reason to make more time to, uh, you know, check out some different paths and that even ones that might be dead ends. Um, yeah, yeah, we've, 
yeah, we're, we're looking for the next one, but uh, I think there are a lot of good potential ideas out there. So just to piggyback on that question, um, what, what is Oru Kayak or Oru to you? What, what, what is the brand? Is it an outdoor brand? Is it, what's the basis of it? Is it a origami brand? What, 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 how would you define you Yeah, know, that's a really identity? good question. And uh, I think it's, it's evolved over the last four years, which probably means it's going to evolve more. Um, I would say for me, and also other people in the company might have different answers to this question. Um, for me, it's about uh, being able to access nature, but from a more urban perspective, um, both in terms of the functional aspects of it. You know, it relates to, to my own origin story about paddling in the San Francisco Bay, um, but also about the overall uh, product design and brand design. Um, when we started this, we wanted to differentiate, or differentiate ourselves, not just through cool folding, um, but also by br bringing in some really um, you know, compelling, proactive, uh, product design into an area of paddle sports where we felt like that wasn't really being valued or pursued much. Um, and the, you know, the aesthetic we, we settled on um, was a pretty clean, urban, minimal kind of look. Um, I think partly because of that history and partly just to differentiate ourselves between uh, all of the other brands that kind of blend together. Uh, I'm, I'm curious if you can talk about you know, the shift in your role from CEO to C CDO and uh, how you interface with the other people on your, the rest of your team who may uh, serve in a design function and just how that, how, what that looks like? Yeah, so that's, uh, yeah, that's a really interesting question that um, I feel like we're also very much working on now. Um, not quite at that level, but uh, I think the, the stability of roles and who's best suited for doing what um, is a much more complicated question than I ever thought. I've, I just never thought about it before actually starting a business and having enough people involved where it's relevant. Um, that you think you think about everything in terms of roles. That you know a designer should be this, this, and this. A CX person should be this, this, and this. But people are more complicated than that. Um, people have, you know, someone may have a few really strong skills in one area, and and then some that would actually be more suited to a completely different department. So we've had people move um, pretty dramatically between roles in the past, and I think we're in the middle of probably a couple people moving roles pretty dramatically now. Um, and yeah, I think that is, that is still really an interesting question. I think um, just in terms of how we work, uh, especially at the executive level, um, I'm technically not CEO, but uh, at least to this point, we've pretty much made all important decisions by consensus among the, the founders and the leadership team. Um, we're seeing a little bit of friction there now, um, just in terms of you know things getting getting big and complex enough where we're not all on the same page as much as we used to be, or where where answers aren't as clear cut or obvious as they used to be. Um, but yeah, I think I think there is this great myth of um, you know roles defining people when a lot of times it's the other way around. I, you know I feel like our ambition is to build a company where we can find the the best, smartest, most flexible people and find the roles that fit them and not the other way around. Uh, but at times that's really hard, you know. Um, it creates confusion when one person is working for two departments. It uh, creates confusion when, um, you know, someone's role description includes something that they're really not very good at. So, um, yeah, it's, it's still an open question for sure.
Yeah. Yeah. career as a business leader as well. So how did that... Um, yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, at that point, so he, he is the CEO now, but that's not originally how it was, you know, necessarily in my head. I just knew I needed someone to do finances and operations, um, which, granted, is a large part of the CEO role. Um, but, yeah, it's, it's true. He, had, he didn't have any more experience running a business than I did. Um, he had a different head for organizational things, but... Yeah, we were all pretty much equally inexperienced. Um, Roberto, our other co-founder, had worked um, at a salesman in a kayak shop for a couple summers, but that was about the extent of his industry or direct business experience. Um, so yeah, we were all completely inexperienced. Uh, no bones about that. Um, there have been some advantages, I think, um, just in terms of being able to look at things with fresh eyes. and. Uh, uh, but certainly some very big disadvantages also. We've, you know, learned almost everything on the job, and uh, Artie, my partner, who went through the MBA program, would be the first one to tell you that most of what he learned in school was completely thrown out the window as soon as he actually had to start running a business. Um, right here, I have a question. There was a, the, the last presenter, there was a guy sitting back there, a complete asshole, asking all kinds of questions. <laughs> <laughs> so I moved up here. Um, <laughs> Uh, my question is, uh, when you were talking about um, REI coming in, uh, Nathan, and I think I know that Nathan, there's not too many buyers by the name of Nathan there, um, it's just interesting because I was thinking, you know, you've been working on this design, you, you own this, this is kind of what you're doing, and then you've got this little prototype thing. Was there, um, was it out of necessity that you said, wow, a thousand POs means, you know, this much growth within our business, it means we can pay bills or whatever at the risk of the integrity of the design because you didn't flush it out yet? I mean, what was going on in your mind during that? Uh, <coughs> I think the, yeah, I think we, we trusted his perspective on um, what customers wanted in markets. You know, we figured he would know as much about that as anyone and probably more than we did since, as I mentioned, we had no industry experience. Um, the, you know, the risk cost benefit was really about, uh, just as you said, a huge PO um, and, you know, they agreed to pay some of it up front, which was incredibly helpful for a small company and which at that point we still couldn't get a bank loan. So that was pretty essential actually. Um, now we can, we're four years old. Yeah. Um, but the risks were the ones I mentioned, just that we wouldn't be able to follow through and that if we didn't, we'd be completely screwed because REI might drop us as a retailer. We might be stuck with hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of inventory with no direct outlet. Um, you know, it totally could have put us out of business, no question. Go ahead. Uh, yeah, we have had some copycats. So um, when I was doing this as a side project, I, uh, I got a patent and being a, a single guy with a day job, um, I couldn't afford the whole international patent process, um, so it covers the US which in retrospect was a big mistake, but another way that the system is not <laughs> particularly designed to work for uh, you know, one guy working out of his garage, for better or worse. Um, so yeah, we've had knockoffs in other countries. Um, there's been one in Korea, a couple in Europe, and uh, yeah, we're doing what we can um, as far as uh, retail relationships and brand building, but there hasn't been that much we can do as far as IP protection for those ones until they you know, we can keep them from selling stuff in the U.S., but in other countries, it's a tough battle. Go ahead. I don't want 
make them run for nothing. Um, so fear, did you have it? If so, how'd you deal with it? If not, why not? Oh, I still have it, <laughs> definitely. Uh, less of it now than I did. Yeah, for sure. I mean, um, you know, deciding to quit my job to take the plunge was, was a definite fear moment. Um, the, yeah, the, the manufacturing fall through in the first days of Kickstarter was like, you know, a massive punch to the head. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, I would say we're definitely less fearful now. Um, I was half joking when I said that. <laughs> Only because something else like the REI thing might come along. I, I trust at this point that there will be other fearful things that will happen that we can't foresee now. But on a daily basis, no. I mean, we're stable enough that we don't have to worry about running out of cash or massively screwing up anymore. Um, but yeah, I think fear is a, fear is a great motivator for sure. I think it's useful in the short term, but uh, it's pretty deadly in the long term. So I think it's about using it to get past it as fast as you can and then uh, hopefully learning, using that to, to get to a more stable place and then hopefully eventually moving past it. All right, well thank you Anton, those were great. Thanks.